Patricia Iolona, 
uh, Nancy Vetter Schultz, Isadora Forrest, Amy Peck, Linda Isles, Andrew Gurvich, Charlotte Cressy, uh, Duffy Damore, Tabby Biddle, Trista Hendren, and Harita Manee. Uh, so, wonderful voices there uh, in this new book, Goddess 2.0. And the um, first part of it is about sacred wisdom, knowing the path toward a new normal. And the second part is sacred action, taking the steps toward a new normal. So, um, I hope you might uh, consider that for your uh, uh, holiday gift giving. Believe it or not, for some reason, um, Amazon has raised a lot of the prices on their books, and uh, I can actually sell the book with shipping and handling cheaper than uh, Amazon's new book price. So, but it doesn't matter to me whether you get it from Amazon, uh, even though I prefer you come to me to get the book, uh, just so long as you maybe go get the book, <laughs> Goddess 2.0. So uh, you can uh, contact me at my website, karentate.com, and uh, we can make arrangements for you to get a copy and just make a payment through PayPal, or if it's easier, just go to Amazon. Uh, So please uh, take a look at that. Uh, I really believe this uh, gives us an idea of how the sacred feminine, her uh, ideals, um, have has matured in the eyes uh, of her advocates. Um, you know how we have so uh, so uh, gone so far beyond a wood color candle to use on your altar. I mean, now we're talking about goddess in terms of social justice and in terms of how goddess ideals uh, can actually help us be better people and uh, help us change the world. So. Uh, That little personal commercial uh, out of the way, uh, let me tell you um, a bit about tonight's guest. Uh, He was on the show last month when we talked about Deborah Moore, uh, who was the co-author of uh, The Great Cosmic Mother. And uh, he's back with me tonight, and uh, he is going to be with me uh, for a few more shows uh, in the coming months. And uh, Jack Dempsey is who I'm talking about. And uh, tonight Jack and I are going to talk talk about the secrets of Minoan Crete's success. And uh, Jack studied Minoan Crete for almost 40 years. Uh, he became a writer in New York, uh, publishing, and uh, he wrote novels about uh, the Minoans called Ariadne's Brother. They came out in 1996. Uh, he earned his Ph.D. at Brown University in uh, Native and Early American Studies, and he's published four books about them, and that's going to be one of our upcoming episodes as well. Um, and, uh, you know, he did a lot of exploration into the Minoan sacred astronomy in one of his books called Calendar House. Uh, you can find out more about all of his uh, many interests and work and books uh, at um, his website, ancientlights.org, ancientlights, L-I-G-H-T-S.org. And uh, he is lucky enough uh, to actually live uh, in Crete today. Uh, lucky guy. I uh, can't help but feel like uh, that's an incredible gift. So um, let me uh, say thanks to Jack for being with me tonight. And uh, also, before I forget, uh, Celia's music uh, is what opened the show, and that was a cut from uh, her single called Meta Prayer. Uh, so uh, many thanks, Celia, for your use of your music on the show. It's always appreciative. And uh, thanks, too, for uh, Jack for uh, being with us tonight. So, Jack, welcome to the show. 
Thank you very much, Karen. Once again, hello to everybody uh, from the middle of the Eastern Mediterranean, uh, where I say good morning or Kalimera, uh, but uh, I know it's good afternoon or good evening probably to most other folks. So, Jack, um, tell me what came first. Did you move to Crete and then start studying the Minoans, or did you uh, have a fascination uh, with the Minoans and that led you to spend more time and eventually live on Crete? Uh, well, there's a Minoan word, dapodizajo, which means a way to the light. And uh, what, I, what started me was, well, I was first living in New York City as a writer in 1980, met a young Jewish woman, 20 years old, named Eve. Uh, six weeks after we began dating, she was abducted and murdered. And I wanted to know why the hell this happens, as a detective says, every single day. So I started turning my education upside down, and poof, there were the Minoans. Never mentioned in my education before. Started digging into that for three years in New York, and then made my first trip to Crete, uh, so I've made many trips here, lived a year at a stretch two different times, and have been homesick for it whenever I leave. So I decided here in my budding 60s decade that I think I'm going to stay here for good, and that's where I am, still studying. Wow. So so let me ask you, I'm, I'm curious, and I know this is kind of off topic, but um, is it hard for an American to live there or support themselves there, or are you retired or – you know, have a nice trust fund, or, you know, how do you manage? Because, you know, Crete has, uh, you know, we hear all of the stuff in the news about, you know, they have such a horrible economy and all of that stuff that even, you know, the Greeks can't support themselves. Is it is it rough, or, um, uh, you know, how, how do you manage? Well, I know from many uh, friends here of many years that it's extremely awful for the Greeks themselves, right? Unemployment for young people is 50%. It's over 25% among regular working adults. Uh, yeah, people are really, and, and the government, thanks to the German banks and the EU, uh, just keeps putting, piling on the pressure. So things are extremely difficult for the Greeks. Uh, as an expat now, uh, I would say it's, uh, well, what I did was I sold my family home back in Boston. Okay. I had 22 years 22 years of college teaching, and I was going through bankruptcy all the time, and uh, uh, so I just wasn't going to make it anyway. I sold my family home, and th that has been able to finance a very simple lifestyle here where I can uh, live in peace, quiet, and simplicity and uh, get the best out of my late years, you might say. Well, you know, that, that sounds like a real gift. It sounds like you probably uh, made a wise decision. And, um, and I have to ask, I, I, I'm, you know, I'm a curious sort. Um, you said that you found the Minoans um, when you were uh, trying to, I guess you were having some sort of existential search, uh, you know, about the, I'm, I'm assuming, you know, the why are we here and alternative history and all of that sort of stuff. Uh, I guess I'm curious, how did uh, your Eve's death take you in that direction? Well, as I mentioned, I, I remember one clear day, I came around the corner of 41st Street, and there was the library shining like a Greek temple at 42nd and 5th, and the trees were in bloom, and she was gone forever, 
and uh, just absolutely heartsick. Again, the, the policeman had told me this is an everyday event with not an not a intended pun on her name, EVE. So again, there were the Minoans. I wasn't going in there to accuse the world of this brutality, which again, we know too well. It was rather that their joy, their advancement, their elan with life and their achievements stuck out on every level. And so I began to wonder, why haven't we been told about these things? And then uh, you begin to discover the immense bias in what we call, well, patriarchal history, because it's been mostly men writing it. The funniest one, and I'll stop here, is simply uh, an art history book that, while it glorified the Minoans' technical achievements, uh, remarked that they didn't have enough shame to cover up women's breasts. So this is the kind <laughs> of analysis... I said, no, this isn't good enough. And uh, it was just full speed ahead from there to try to recover uh, the goodness of human beings, which I very much still believe in. I see that. Well, you know what? That makes perfect sense. You know, it's it's sort of like the uh, the uh, Minoans pulled you out of your grief, uh, you know, gave you a beautiful distraction uh, from a horrible, horrible event. Uh, but rather than a distraction, an understanding, you know, I think we're going to come tonight to a point where you might say, what are the Minoans saying to us? And one of them is uh, a phrase I've arrived at through lots of writing, which is that people are good unless they get too much power, unless they yeah. get too much power, then they go bad every time. So uh, we need that fundamental wisdom. People are good. Believe in ourselves. We can do this but we have to decentralize power uh, and share it. Yeah. Well, and I think, you know, share it is a, is a real crucial part of that because, you know, um, and, and, you know, I won't go too far into this because, you know, I, I don't want to take our time talking about uh, Donald Trump, but, um, you know, I really do believe that uh, Donald Trump, in a sense, is a gift. Um, you know, I think uh, people have been so... Uh, outraged or uh, so uh, there's so much in fear about him that he is I, I think he is going to be a real catalyst for um, for for activism and people getting involved um, you know because I, I I don't think people think they want the kind of world he's going to offer and um, I, I, I am I am hopeful um, and it feels very positive to me, the reaction to him. Um, you know, so many more people are getting up off the couch, and uh, I, I think that's a really good thing. And it's a shame we had to um, have somebody like him um, force us to do that. But, you know, if that's the way it has to happen, that's the way it has to happen, because we have to be participatory and recreating the world. It's just not going to be uh, dropped in our lap. I, I think you're exactly right on to define the times. You know, the American system called profit or capitalism is about to look itself directly in the face in a way uh, with an intensity we haven't seen before. So the first question is, where is my power to say no to this? And when we have been told that we don't have any power from every direction, I think we start to realize, you know where my power is? It's every day when I get up and go to work. So if my job continues to put me in a deeper and deeper pit of slavery all the time, we've got to come up with an alternative way of running our economy. And the value that is the, you might say, opposite of profit is sharing. 
cooperative workplaces. We don't need CEOs. We need workers who know their own products and, and are in command of their own labor. That's what this system responds to, the flow of money. So let's go that way. Well, and Richard Wolf, who I had on the show, uh, he's an a economist. He also said we have to get to the point where, where we have a lot more employee-owned businesses uh, because then the employees won't be exploited by the, you know, the guys in the big office, you know. Well, Absolutely, and uh, you know where, where all this tonight's subject dovetails with that is that, well, again, we, uh, as Richard Wolf points out again and again to our empowerment, we are so ignorant of that, that it's been done before. The Minoans, to me, got it right the first time, and uh, we, we just don't know this yet, so how can we feel optimistic about what we're going to build? Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, he said he said that, uh, you know, uh, uh, professors, uh, if they expected to get tenure, uh, if they were an economics professor, they couldn't talk about anything. But capitalism was wonderful. You know, they couldn't extol the virtues of any other form of um, finance. You know, they were just expected to toe the party line, so to speak. Um, And so that's why so many Americans uh, don't even know that there are other alternatives out there or like when Bernie Sanders came along and was talking about democratic socialism, um, you know, they all, you know, so many of them freaked out because they had no idea what he was talking about, you know, or that we already have it, uh, you know, when it comes to social security and libraries and roads and all the rest, you know. Well, we always have our power to make change depending on what we do with the labor every day. And we also need to take responsibility for our own education, if the system from one end to the other seems to be failing us, then each of us and all of us together, we, we've got to start doing better uh, somehow outside the box because we're not going to make yeah. it on the model we have. Yeah, yeah, and responsibility for our own education. Uh, that's one of the reasons why I started doing this show, quite frankly. That's one of my mantras. But, but to every sort of week, segue Karen, this- Every week it shows. <laughs> Oh, thank you. Thank you, Jack. Um, and, and you know, to sort of segue this back to Minoan Crete, what did, the, what did the Minoans know that we don't seem to know? You know, we think we're so m- more modern and sophisticated and intelligent. Um, you know, what have you been able to glean from the Minoans that made them so successful? And, you know, how was their system better than ours? Well, if I had to name one central point that might begin to unlock all the many ways that they uh, made themselves successful, it would be, again, to return to that little mantra of mine, is that, again, people are good unless they get too much power. So I think we're going to be able to see by the end of tonight that the Minoans had a very sophisticated, nature-based way of limiting the exercise of power by their elite. And that has, I think, been the key to the whole thing. Uh, Their life was certainly physically pleasant, an ideal climate, uh, natural world, and so forth. Uh, They really loved every kind of endeavor under the sun, from sports to technology and exploration. But again, their political organization, you've got to have it together if you're going to go in uh, an almost uninterrupted cultural continuity for about 2,700 years. That's 10 wow. times as long as the history of the United States so far. Yeah. You've got to have it together. And so we'll, we'll get into the wonky stuff about that later as we go. 
So so they were around for almost 3,000 years is what you're saying, Minoans on Crete, right? Yeah, you know what? In 30 seconds or so, I can give listeners a, a really some really useful ways to just place the Minoans in time. Uh, we've only okay. had about 120. We've only had about 120 years of archaeology since uh, Sir Arthur Evans discovered Knossos Labyrinth uh, around 1900. Uh, what we now know, just within the last year or two, is that the humanity, the human living on Crete, goes back to the Paleolithic. Uh, in the southwest of Crete, they found these beautiful white quartz axes that are dated between, and here's a window for you, 130,000 to 700,000 BCE. So Crete, uh, besides having, quote, Stone Age inhabitants, uh, begins in the Neolithic, around 10,000 BC, at the place called, again, Kenosis, it's a few miles from the northern coast in the middle of the island, there are these pits where you see the foundations and little stairways of houses. They might have been also grain storage areas that are dated pretty solidly to nine or 10,000, okay? And also activity in the great caves and on the mountain peaks of Crete. So here's the frame. Knossos then is as old as the oldest place we've, other place we found, Gobekli Tepe in Turkey, about 9,000 BC. It was contemporary with Katal Huyuk, also in Anatolia or Turkey, 7,500. And it was running up and running by the time of the great temples of Malta, around 3600. The DNA tests now most recently suggest that the Minoan people were Europeans. They came from northern regions rather than from Egypt or the African and Libyan coasts. But their cultural inheritance also comes from, again, Anatolia in a period of great migration. So here are some simple final ways to frame this. Easily, you have 2,000 years of clear cultural continuity in change, development, evolution. This is the ground floor of Western civilization. This is 500 years before the first pyramids at Giza, and it goes to the effective end of Egypt's empire around 1200. It starts about 500 years before Stonehenge, 3100, and it goes to the rise of the Minoan descendants' rise in Palestine and the meeting with the first Israelites around 1200. Finally, Minoan independence, their cultural independence, ended about 1200 years before Athens and its democracy. And that, all in all, Karen, is longer than the Roman Empire, including the wow. Eastern Empire, which went a, a good deal later. So, again, they had wow. to be doing something right. Yeah, and so they were, uh, yeah, that really gives uh, a whole new context, because to be honest with you, I don't think I quite grasped that. Um, I'm thinking they might have just been a little bit before what we recognize as Greece, but they go back uh, much, much, much further. Um, so, but now here's the thing, Jack. Um, for, we, I don't think we ever uh, have. We don't. We don't understand their language, though, do we? Don't they? Uh, don't they have a, a language? Uh, their writing has not been deciphered, or am I confusing them with some some other uh, people? Well, in the 1950s, a, math, a British mathematician named Michael Ventris finally decoded uh, a good deal of the scripts that involved. That would be the earliest. I think was called hieroglyphic. Then the Minoans, a classic writing in which they kept the accounts of their trade, businesses, and so forth, personnel, is called Linear A. And then when the mainland eventual Greeks, the so-called Mycenaeans, took over in Crete, they adapted Minoan writing into what we now call Linear B. 
that gave us great insights into Mycenaean mainland culture, but at the same time, the same problem appertains. That is to say, it seems they weren't yet writing, you could say, Homeric epics and uh, histories of their families and dynasties and so forth. They were really just using writing at that point uh, to keep accounts straight. So this suggests something itself in that uh, you might say, as I think, again, it'll come out in other ways, that uh, the Minoans and perhaps the early Mycenaeans, they lived in the, what you could call the forever now. The cycles of seasons were cycling through the forever now. They were not interested in history per se. And although, of course, we have learned a lot from it, they might have an argument. <laughs> they just hmm. wouldn't be bothered with it, like Native Ameri- most Native American peoples who, who just would, did not have time of day, you might say, to uh, devote so much to the past. Well, and and I'm just going to throw this out there, and you know what? This might be just a, a crazy, stupid thing to say, but it popped into my head, so I'll share it and see if you uh, – and, and feel free to say, no, Karen, uh-uh, a bad idea. Um, you know, so it sounds like they had uh, they had a written um, alphabet or whatever. You know, they, they, they yeah. have the ability to write. But it's not the like the main focus of their life. They're using it to uh, take care of record keeping, more or less. So um, I'm wondering. You know, it makes me think about that uh, book, The Alphabet and the Goddess. Uh, and I think, I, and I didn't read the whole book. I just kind of briefly know the premise. And I think the premise is this. You know, the guy who wrote it, um, his theory was as soon as people started to become too left brain then that contributed to the demise of the sacred feminine and the right brain way of doing things. And I'm wondering if if uh, writing was not a big deal to them, um, I wonder if that uh, f- uh, factors in t- you know into that theory of the alphabet and the goddess. You know, maybe they were still living more in their right brain than in their left brain, uh, and maybe that helped them. Um, well, you know, live their life differently. Uh, I think it certainly did. I think it certainly has to denote, uh, you can't just define the Minoans in terms of what they, quote, lacked. That is to say, an obsession with textual uh, representations, a nationalistic conquest kind of spirit. You can't define them in terms of what they were not. You have to think about what they were. Uh, Now, there's a a great historian, Frederick Turner, who wrote a very uh, influential book called Beyond Geography back in the 90s. And he, with a smile, he defines history as Western civilization's suicide note. In other words, because when when there was an almost simultaneous beginning between kingship, as we formally understand it, hereditary, lifelong, omnipotent, and the centrality of text, humanity, for my money, begins to go downhill. And we've been heading on this almost suicidal path since then. But as you remember, uh, Barbara Moore, who we discussed earlier, has said this too in a different way, in that cultures like the Minoans and many others were centered around their context, the natural world that taught them, supported them, uh, fed them, made them happy, and all that kind of good stuff about life. When culture becomes obsessed instead with a representation of reality, there's no anchor anymore. You can put anything into a book you want to say, right, from Gandhi to Hitler. But the trouble is we think somehow that the roadmap is the road, and it isn't. Or, and I'll stop here, but as Alan Watts, the great philosopher, once said, when you take words too literally, 
what you've done is climbed up the street sign instead of going down the road that it's pointing. Hmm. You know, it, it, it uh, I mean, uh, you know, it's a complicated subject, but it almost, you know, and maybe this is too simplistic, but maybe it almost says uh, we have the potential for having a better quality of life uh, when we're less literate. Hmm. Not that not that we don't want to be able to read. I don't really mean that, uh, but it, it but it feels as if um, uh, I, I don't know. We we've stopped taking the journey or something. You know, uh, we we've we've definitely lost something. Well, part of the feminist revolution, as you know, is uh, intimately connected with the language study. Uh, linguistics, post-structuralism, deconstruction. And while I totally agree with your point that we, we need to detox from so many of these self-destructive ideas that came to us, yes, through text, um, what we have now for the first time is really a very sharp instrument with which to kind of triangulate ourselves. In other words, every text has bias. Every human being has bias. It's inevitable and inescapable. But deconstruction and these things allow us at least to say, okay, let's look at the bias here. Let's compare it with the bias over there in that source and slowly triangulate our way toward what we can call pretty reliable facts. <clears throat> and I think that process has been feeding both feminism and the recovery of the Minoans. So it's an interesting dovetailing of historical currents here uh, that is emerging right when we need it. Well, and you know, Jack, and I hope you don't. I hope you don't think this is too off base. But since we're talking about language, um, I don't know if you have uh, have the ability to see it some kind of a way. But there's a new movie out here in the states right now called The Arrival, and uh, it's about the arrival of extraterrestrials to the planet. And uh, and, I'll, and I'll make a long story short, um, but. It's so much about language, and what the what these aliens are trying to do is give us the gift of what we what we um, what they came to call the universal language, and the whole idea is our language is very linear, which affects the way we experience time. They, on the other hand. Uh, taught or, or giving us the gift of the universal language, which is not linear, which, um, which enables the person who knows the universal language to see time very differently. They can see time uh, simultaneously past, present, and future. And how would that change the world? And it makes me think, some of these ancient cultures, you know, we don't really know um, stuff like that about them, you know. I often wonder how much has been lost because, you know, history is written by the conquerors. You know, how many things were destroyed in the library of Alexandria? Um, you know, who knows how much uh, has been lost in humanity's history? And... Um, I don't know, it's just fascinating to me to think that maybe some of these goddess cultures that were more right brain in their thinking and less left brain, less linear, you know, they might have been able to 
uh, comprehend these parallel universes or uh, or different time periods, and uh, you know just you know their whole comprehension and 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 resulting way of life could have been totally different than than what we can even comprehend. Well, language is certainly a set of limitations on, uh, or you could say disciplines on how the mind perceives reality. Uh, But what we're discovering, uh, again, in the kind of post-structural era, is that, well, in fact, while some of the linguists tell us that there is only language, we know that there's more than that. You can signify things with your body, with sheer sound, with movement, with all kinds of things that, well, these, it's interesting, these are the mediums through which we're seeing, at least, what we can see of the Minoans and their mindset, right? They haven't left us a description of that in language, but they've certainly left us a description of that in architecture, in landscape, in their cultural images of themselves, in their effects on peoples, uh, both domestic and overseas, uh, and in their sheer differences, which persist today in Crete from the rest of the Greek and the rest of the European uh, worldview. So uh, all in all, I would just say, well, that being the case, you're right, Karen, and everything you said, I believe, uh, let's get to work looking at what we do have and see what we can learn from that without depending on a text for a change. I think that's going to help return our habits of mind to a multi-dimensional appreciation of what it is to be alive. And if anything, that's what the Minoans have left us. And, and you know, and that's difficult to do. Uh, I mean, I will admit, because even myself, I consider myself pretty open-minded and, and willing to consider an awful lot of things that maybe um, some other people would just be real uncomfortable with. Um, you know, I, I think about, you know, these new ways of knowing um, may come to us in um, unorthodox ways. You know, uh, maybe we're going to channel it. Maybe it's going to be some kind of a download. And, you know, as soon as you start to hear people talk like that, it, I don't know about you, but it makes me uncomfortable, you know, because you have to take so much on faith. Uh, you know, do, do you really know if the information that they're, uh, that's streaming through them, you know, if, if it's real? Uh, I'm sorry. I I feel like I'm kind of starting to ramble now, but it it, but it's but it gets to you know it gets to um, what are our other alternatives to uncover um, you know this ancient knowledge? You know, do we have other viable alternatives? You've hit it on the head, Karen. It seems unorthodox. What else can it seem? Because look at the power and the brutality and the repetition involved in the education towards standardized minds that we do get. Anything outside that box is going to seem unorthodox, right? But again, Mm -hmm. uh, we have to make some fundamental decisions right now. Do we want to to continue towards suicide or do we want to say no enough? We're going to change. And once we make that hopefully latter decision, we're going to start saying, well, is there anybody who can help us? And that has been, you could say, my mission, a part of my mission as a writer, uh, to try to recover these positive moments that are equally hard factual 
and put them in front of us again to say, wait a minute, we, we're, in, we're imitating the wrong models. Up until now, final remark here, the West has been imitating Homer. And Alexander the Great went to Troy and, uh, uh, with Homer under his arm. This is the model of the world, conquer and create order. Well, it doesn't work that way. And the Minoans are, again, waiting to be heard uh, for all the different principles that can guide us to something smarter. So, so Jeff, what do you think are the ancient and modern distortions um, that we have about Minoan Crete? Well, given, excuse me, given uh, some of the facts we've already treated, uh, some of these are going to sound almost comical, but they were uh, the Bible on the Minoans for quite a long time. Uh, the ancient main one results like this. At the, what we call the tail end of Minoan times, uh, rising people on the mainland called the Mycenaeans began to feel their oats. They had learned from the Minoans for probably 500 years, and then they began to come to Crete, see what was well available to the hands of violent people, and took over. This was enabled by the eruption of the Thera or Santorini volcano, which produced the loudest noise perhaps ever heard on Earth. And in the wake of that, as the Mycenaeans took over, going on to last maybe about 400 years, they handed down to the later Athenians and Spartans and Homeric Greeks a set of myths about the Minoans. King Minos was a tyrant, although he is invisible archaeologically in Crete. His wife, a queen, Pasiphaea, was a nymphomaniac. Their daughter, Ariadne, this uh, crown of their culture, was actually a naive little princess who had never seen a real man before she saw Theseus and betrayed her whole culture to him. Finally, a, a minotaur, a, man, a bow-headed man-monster that fed on human flesh and treated with imperial tyranny other people abroad. But Theseus rescued us from all this. So those are the ridiculous reasons, quote, in what Robert Graves calls political cartoons or myths, why the Minoans had to go. And the recent, fairly recent novelist, Mary Renault, repeated this in her book, The King Must Die. Everybody you'll, Minoan, uh, of any Minoan taint, you might say, in her work, is a kind of a sickly effeminate. But here are some of the other distortions that we're detoxing from, and this, this is a very good thing. One is that they vanished. You're going to see endless repetitions of this lie in uh, documentaries from the BBC to National Public Radio. They didn't vanish. They moved to Cyprus and into Palestine, etc. Another is that Crete was a utopia, a perfect world that never existed. It was even Atlantis. I mean, it doesn't even matter whether it's connected to Atlantis or not. This myth of utopia engenders the counter-surprise. Oh, my goodness, they had weapons and a military. Well, of course they knew how to defend themselves. That doesn't mean they were a militarized, uh, king-based uh, civilization. Then you have a genre that I call apocalypse. This is the, the, the fixation on how the Minoans died uh, in the tsunamis and invasion and so forth. And never says a word about how they lived. Okay, but the funniest one that I've come across in these 40 years, I'm sorry to say, belongs to National Geographic. They win the prize for what I call evangelical editing. The first issue, Karen, uh, in the year 2000, the new millennium for National Geographic, features a great fold-out chart, as they're always producing on their subjects. And this outline in the big chart starts with the Homeric Mycenaeans, the conquerors whose first hurrah was conquering Crete, and their last hurrah was conquering Troy, and then they fell apart. 
Well, the National Geographic says in a sidebar to beginning with Mycenaean swords and gold, it says the Mycenaeans learned from the Minoans, an earlier and more advanced people, quote unquote. Uh, I'm going, hello? <laughs> then why aren't we starting with the earlier, more advanced people? See what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. it's mainstream education to distort that thing somehow. And I can tell you from experience with other uh, targets in historical writing, there are deep, important reasons why these examples have to be ridiculed, twisted, mocked away. Well, you see, that's what I, you know, that's what was starting to churn in my mind, <clears throat> because you know we know that what we know about Cleopatra, uh, what, was, what we know about Cleopatra was, uh, you know, comes from her enemies, and we have this distortion about uh, who Cleopatra really was. So, what, you know, what was so scary about the Minoans that they had to be demonized? You know, it makes you wonder if they didn't. <clears throat> in fact, um, have some uh, structure or uh, some culture, some way of life that was threatening to the people who wanted to be in power, uh, that they, because we, we see that over and over again, you know, they, uh, you know, they demonize women's sacred blood because maybe they coveted it. Uh, you know, they demonize women's ability, uh, you know, as, as life giver because, you know, that gave women too much power. It, it, I, I'm always suspicious when people get demonized because it makes me think, um, you know, that, that somehow uh, there was a strategy and intention in distorting that, uh, you know, whatever it was that's being demonized. Well, for sure. I think you could, you could generalize to say that the, the problem with the Minoans is they're different. Let's say you walk around the world saying, I am the favorite of the universe. I am the best that ever was. I am in control of everything. You will bow down to me because I'm me. And then suddenly you meet someone someday, one day who's living an incredibly ancient, sophisticated, rich, healthy, happy life. They don't need you for anything. So this kind of complex, uh, I've seen it again as an American historian, really bothered the early Americans too. How can we be prisoners within our own palisade, controlled by these military and religious non-leaders and charlatans, and bear with the idea that Indians are out there in the woods dancing, feasting, and having a good time. It's unbearable. We have to go stop this. And so there's a real urge under, again, historical writing about ancient Crete and about American Indians, for example, that share almost all the same charges. They let women have power. They let women participate. They let women be heard and seen. Now, here's the fundamental thing to, to try to answer your question. The problem, again, with that is underlying the difference is that they were there first, and they were doing quite well. Now, if you want to change the world to serve yourself, that's the meaning of a charlatan, you've got to erase the memory that it was ever otherwise. The Minoans, as a quote utopia, you could say, are an alternative. They're, they give the lie immediately to the idea from power that this is the way it has to be. So the Minoans' presence, as it increases in our historical awareness, is going to change our standards to what's acceptable. Hey, the Minoans were doing this pretty groove thing for 2,000 plus years. What were they doing? Why don't we change? 
that's the danger in these people and why they must be demonized. They allow us to think yeah. we can change. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, I I so see that. You know, and it's it's really interesting that that seems to be um, a topic that keeps creeping up. Um, you know, it keeps creeping up in my, in my life for some reason uh, these days. Um, you know, just this this whole idea of deception and distortion. I mean, Merlin Merlin Stone, one of uh, you know one of the feminist foremothers uh, who wrote When God Was a Woman, she believed that the Garden of Eden myth was one of the first stories of political propaganda, turning people away from goddess and the power that they derived from, um, you know, being a goddess-oriented culture, uh, you know, to demonizing the woman. I mean, you know, we all know what happens to, you know, women get the blame for all the woes of the world, you know, starting with the Garden of Eden. And, um, I, you know, I, 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 it, it would be, I would love to, you know, it would, that would make a great book, wouldn't it? To be able to go back and write something that could document all of these great reversals, you know, um, when... Well, it's uh, when it, it, it's, I'm sorry, I just wanted to add, it, it's out there now, Karen, in, in you might, what you might call piecemeal form, in very substantial works of archaeological, archaeologically-based history now, that are putting this back together. Um, we have to realize that Greece and the Middle East that spawned uh, the, the Israelite culture are two of the four pillars of the modern world, of the modern brain, you might even say. And those two countries or regions were among the first in Western history to change from a, well, use the term loosely, matrifocal worldview to a patriarchal one, the emergence of text, of kingship, of statism, uh, the worship of symbols of power rather than symbols of nature uh, is fundamental. So, you know, we're, we're in the process of decoding and deconstructing that to recover the positive core of facts uh, that can serve us. So where, where else could we look to, to get clues of civilizations that um, didn't suffer the great reversals because they've been influenced by the Middle East or, or Greece. I mean, I guess the Native Americans are one, right? And the Minoans. Absolutely. But, do, but um, what would what other ones um, might you know about? Well, if we mentioned before Malta. Um, Stonehenge and places like that where uh, you might say matrifocal cultures survived well into the historical period and were, quote, removed one by one, then I, I always say that in, in the war of ideologies, chronology is key. Just get your facts in time order, and a lot of the ideology that clouds our view will evaporate of its own absurdity, okay? Uh, but let's start once again, if we may, with the Minoans. A lot of them migrated after the fall of their culture to the Middle East, became known as the Philistines by mixing with Canaanite and other traditions. When that period fell because of wars with the Israelites, boom, all of a sudden we look in Italy and there are the Etruscans with all the same basic characteristics of their culture. Um, after that, you might say, come the Celts or Celts of Northern Europe, whose, again, their matrifocal traditions 
uh, endured well into the historical period. And then we have at least 13,000 years of the majority of native cultures in the Western Hemisphere uh, being just that way as well. So they're all around us. Also, the Pacific Islands, Polynesia, uh, almost any direction and time you want to look, you're going to see these alternatives. But the job of the self-educating person is to know enough of the trends that malign these cultures to step past them and to get get down to the root of facts again that can help us. Right, right, right. So you have to dig deeper, deeper before the spin, the patriarchal spin starts to happen. Um, Exactly. Okay, so so, so going back to uh, the Minoans, um, and I'm sorry I'm taking you so far afield with some of these questions. Um, Not at all. What are are some of the most important Minoan discoveries and mysteries? Okay. Uh, Well, let's see. Sir Arthur Evans, an English aristocrat, used his personal fortune to dig up Knossos based on the work of a Greek, a Cretan guy named Minos Kalokairinos. This was in 1900. Uh, Evans' archaeology at Knossos uncovered uh, a a huge 1,500-room complex, which he originally dubbed, because he was an aristocrat, the House of a King. But more recent research has shown that this was not what it was. It was rather a kind of a ceremonial center or a Vatican city of its time that was raised by many Minoan clans and families as a place to center their religion. So we're now discovering since then many so-called palace sites or country centers, you might call them. Um, As I mentioned, Michael Ventress and John Chadwick in the 50s decoded Linear A and then Linear B. Uh, not linear A, excuse me, but they were able to get a handle on uh, B because of its Greek. Um, Another important discovery was what's sometimes called the first compact disc, the Festus disc, which was discovered by Italian archaeologists in 1908. This has still not been deciphered, but there's a a world of theories out there about it. Uh, We're discovering a wide range of Minoan contacts with the islands, with the Trojans, with the mainland, Libya, Egypt, Canaan, Syria, they're loaning artists out to paint the walls of nice houses. They're getting personal gifts of quantities of precious tin from Mahdi, which is three-quarters of the way to Babylon. Uh, There's a wonderful German uh, scientist and archaeologist, Sabine Beckman, who's been doing fantastic work about life now outside the Minoan palaces by reconstructing an entire ecological park uh, where she has found smaller Minoan residences, so we're learning a lot about their daily life. In 2001, Lucy Goodison made a tremendous discovery that is fundamental to understanding Minoan time when she realized that the so-called throne of Knossos aligns with the light that comes into the room on winter solstice day. Just to add just two or three things quickly, uh, there have been other studies now based on the landscape called the study of viewsheds, the Minoan's use of light to communicate from the mountain peaks across their island. Um, and then some Swedish astronomers, one Goran Henriksen and Mary Blomberg, since the 90s have been studying also Minoan astronomy, uh, figuring out how their buildings and settlements align with different uh, astronomical events. And then in 1977, to me, one of the most important Uh, Dr. Charles Herberger's book called The Thread of Ariadne, where he had first noticed certain patterns in a border of a certain fresco that key us in to what I believe is the central rhythm of Minoan time. So uh, it's a really still, uh, every year something hot is popping out of this field. 
So are these? Yeah. So these are all published things. Um, these aren't just oh, obscure. Yeah. Uh, okay, I, I didn't realize so much. Uh, so you know, so uh, many discoveries were being uh, made on on Crete these days. Um, wow, I Can mean I that's that's. I'll, I'll refer your listeners to probably the central, most readable, and richly professional uh, collections of recent Minoan studies. There's a book out of the University of Liège, L-I-E-G-E, uh, and it's called Aegeum, A-E-G-E-A-U-M. And these are just enormous volumes collecting the works of international uh, archaeologists and scholars uh, that detail almost every aspect of Minoan life that you could want to study. Uh, that is the mother load, and it's mostly available online now if you look under those terms I, I named for you. So you're saying it's free online to read the volumes, or you can go online to find the book to purchase it? Uh, both, actually, but as I say, let's say if there are 20-odd volumes, I think at least 15 of them are available in total for free online if you run a game and keep pushing to find it you will wow wow yeah. that's uh that, that's that's pretty pretty incredible so um so what uh so let, let's talk a little bit about uh you know life religion politics um it, you you say that the cycles of time shaped minoan life religion and politics what do you mean by that well, uh, like our own civilization, every civilization of any uh, organization, such as the Minoans manifested, has to have a way of counting time. To do that, you need an anchor point. And uh, although many civilizations choose the same one, uh, many civilizations choose other ones, such as uh, perhaps autumn equinox, spring equinox, etc. It appears that the Minoan central system was winter solstice-based, counting that as day one or New Year Day, uh, other scholars whom I very much respect, including Laura Perry, have made strong arguments, uh, also Sabine Beckman, that the Minoan New Year was autumn equinox, but there are some problems with that theory too. Um, the centrality of a calendar, uh, the, the scientists who have been, probably most people have heard of the Antikythera mechanism, this uh, metal-constructed quasi-computer uh, concerning cycles of astronomy, the scientists who publish in the great journal Nature about that say, you cannot overestimate the importance of a calendar for organizing all kinds of human endeavor. So there has to be one uh, serving the Minoans, and we can talk about that. But you know what? If I may, Karen, I'd like to throw out some topics for you uh, in terms of describing some basic things about Minoan civilization, and then we can come back to the calendar. But I want to open the floor to questions of yours about, well, just the more nuts and bolts of how they lived for a moment. Would that be okay? Yeah. You yeah, and well, and, and the one thing I, I, I don't want to forget, um, I can understand it's important for everybody to have the same calendar, but is it, does it matter whether day one starts at autumn equinox or winter solstice? Well, it matters. Uh, here we are at language again. Language is a way of picking out certain aspects of reality and representing them, right? So the symbols or the days by which you break down time are going to tell a lot about you, what you see as important in the natural world around you. Because again, if civilization isn't harmoniously squarely based on some kind of a natural rhythm, you're going to fall into chaos. 
So you can count from either of those days, let's say, sure, equally usefully. But the question is, how accurately are the heavenly bodies going to uh, match your system of counting? Now, in a, a quick nutshell, the autumn equinox system, at least as the demonstrations of it so far uh, reveal, was about 11 days off in terms of predicting the actual New Year day. That is to say, you saw the moon at a certain phase and a certain time, but you had to count in another 11 days to get the right thing. However, if you're observing the cycles of the sun and the moon, when are they both together at the beginnings of their cycles? That is to say, when does lunar and solar time harmonize? The Minoan system, I believe, based on what uh, massive evidence is, was at winter solstice with a new moon in the sky. Uh, again, the purpose of the calendar is to harmonize lunar and solar time and thereby keep your seasonal activities from slipping backwards. If we didn't do this with our own leap day and so forth, we'd soon be selling Easter, celebrating Easter in November, for example. They're called movable feasts. I see, I see. And, and uh, okay, so, all right, well, let's just explore this a little bit more. Um, why would it, would it be the end of the world if we celebrated Easter in November? I mean, it, does it matter when we celebrate Easter? Uh, well, in a sense, no. As Laura Perry well points out, farmers, people who raise their own food, they don't need a calendar or a computer to tell you when they need to plant and weed and water and all those kinds of things. Of course, that's very obvious. But there's another level of culture which organizes those productive forces into a, an economy. In the Minoans case, what's often called a sacred economy. And in some endeavors, we need to be on the same page. So while there was never any, you could say, Minoan tyranny about time, there, the, the evidence suggests that of the over 20 different countryside centers around which Minoan villages clustered, they shared certain allegiances to a centralized system of time that was kept most skillfully at Kenosis. And again, this empowered their economy to become more than just a subsistence system, to say it succinctly as I can. Okay, okay. Um, all right. It, it, and so, um, all right, so what, what direction did you want to go next? Uh, well, let me just tell you a couple of general, generalities about the Minoans, and we can go in any direction from there or back to the calendar as you wish, which is, again, quite revealing, of, I believe, their political structure and why they were so successful. Uh, as we mentioned in the original, in the opening minutes, we're talking about 2,000 and more years of relatively peaceful, continuous uh, progress. The Minoans were a dynamic, steady-state economy, very traditional but very inventive. Their island kept them, you could say, insulated with the plenitude of their island, but even so, they were carefully eclectic in what they borrowed and learned from other cultures. Their regions and their people as a whole are proudly independent, proud of their cultural differences, right down to the regions today. But some things were holding them together. Meanwhile, what gravitated, what gravitated, terrible verb, me to the Minoans and many other people is just, well, their exuberance, their enjoyment of life, the body, the, the sports, the natural world, the, the beauty of their artwork, the small tech of their achievements, their world exploration, their powers of observation and to build along with natural forces, the fact that they had the highest average living standards of all the peoples known in their world at that time. 
Jeffrey Souls, a great scholar of Minoan Crete, says that they were a large, free, landed middle class living across the island. They had very long and old attachments to their family tombs, to their ancestors, without slavery, without uh, obvious militarism. Their islands and their trade uh, came by building uh, ports and uh, facilities in other countries and probably thereby marrying in with the local people as opposed to establishing military-based colonies. Their trades gave us what is sometimes called the Minoan philosophy or control of the seas with the use of standardized weights, uh, practices. They charged a 10% fee, we're told, to ship other people's goods. They had a wide and fluid distribution of power that is sometimes called a heterarchy, or in Greek, heterarchia. And finally, we have, here we are, that the voices of the sacred feminine, from the first, the evidence of women being central, strong, having executive functions based on their social web, which is sometimes called the damos. That is the early version of the word demos, the people. So we know that women were central, strong, uh, very involved in the conduct of this culture, and that they were generally far more democratic and far more gender egalitarian than anything later we see in Western civilization. So again, we can take it anywhere you want to go from there, Karen. Well, and I can see, um, you know, maybe you know with the patri- the uh, you know the patriarchal Greeks who, uh, you know, women were second-class citizens there. You know, I can see where if if this idea, you know, this way of life that they had on Crete, um, you know, if that became, you know, too well-known, you know, maybe that could potentially cause a problem for them, you know? I invite anybody to look up the Etruscans and to look at the first Roman historians' text people who were writing about what the Etruscans were and, quote, well, here we are again, why they had to go. You're going to see, it's almost laughable, the exact same set of, quote, charges against the Etruscans. They were decadent. They believed in pleasure. They didn't worry about tomorrow. They let women be public. They, they had all kinds of differences that the, that the Romans did not like and wanted to get rid of. Hmm. It it kind of reminds me of the right wing complaining about the liberals. <laughs> you know how how dare you women want to control your own reproductive rights? Uh, well, um, is it Stephen Colbert who says that reality has a distinctly liberal bias? Yeah, I, I haven't heard him say that, but I can I can imagine uh, I can imagine him saying it. Um, so so Jack, it, oh, it's on a T-shirt. No, I would say it makes a good one. Oh, would make oh okay. Oh. Um, so you mentioned uh, in passing uh, in, in, earlier in the conversation that some people have, um, you know, one of the distortions was they've connected Crete to Atlantis. Um, so you so you don't think there's any possibility uh, Crete might have been. Uh, the the famous Atlantis. I wouldn't say that. What what I'm trying to say is that the question is relatively unimportant in the process of <clears throat> understanding the Minoans, because at the, the myth of Atlantis was told by an Egyptian priest to a Greek historian over a thousand years after the fact. 
Now, even though that legend says that this wonderful land of great order and achievement was located far to the west, which has put it in the Atlantic, in the Americas, uh, Lord knows where, uh, it just isn't that important a matter to understanding uh, the Minoans in their own right. That's all. It becomes okay. kind of the ghetto. We we always invent a utopia and then keep it in a ghetto away from serious discussion. And I feel that to associate the Minoans with Atlantis helps to keep them in that place. I see. I see. That makes sense. Um, all right. So what do we really know about Minoan spirituality? Um you know, and, and do we even know maybe the, I mean, did the, their goddess have a name? I mean, I, I know I've I've been in the uh, uh, the museum there, I mean, a wonderful museum, and, you know, there's the snake goddess and her sisters, but, I mean, we don't even really know the the names of those goddesses or if they were goddesses or priestesses, right, or, or what? Well, that's... For me, one of the most wonderful things is that no matter what Minoan icon you look at, you really are not sure whether you're looking at a human being or a divinity. They seem to have the same shape, okay? Uh, in terms of names, I, I think the although there are multiple names in uh, the Minoan writing, at least one year before goddesses, this seems to be when they began to split up. The Minoans may have had uh, diverse uh, versions of, quote, the goddess as well. The central name I think most scholars uh, go by is Potnia, P-O-T-N-I-A, probably is a root that gives us words such as potent, meaning powerful. Um, Ariadne is probably the one mythical figure who's actually named in the Linear B tablets, tablets as, quote, mistress of the labyrinth receiving offerings. Um, the great-grandfather of archaeologists, as some call him, John Younger, who's a brilliant, uh, brilliantly learned linguist, has pointed out in recent work that there's a word, wana, from Luwian or Anatolian, eastern Turkish areas where some of the Minoans cultural influences may have come, and that has been uh, uh, built upon to create the word wanasa, or wanasa, which means a woman who is a queen or who is powerful. So uh, these are some of the linguistic roots uh, of pointing toward a spirituality, and I want to try to answer your question now, but let me back up one step. The key, I believe, is the Minoan times ecological cycles. Um, they were deeply, of course, connected to nature, and the habits by which they survived and prospered in nature underwrote a lot of their uh, wonky daily activities that involved uh, food production, socialization, celebration, etc. These, in turn, uh, at least as anthropology understands it, become manifestations of the group in which the group begins to manifest a deity. And if the great mother is central to that, and I can name you some evidences that point that way, um, that would seem to be the way that the Minoans understand the world, the ecological realities and the natural realities uh, centered around women. Um, the word damos, which precedes the later Greek demos for the people, is largely understood as a female-centered social order. Now, in most of the Minoans' constructions architecturally, there are always these charming little benches uh, where people believe they shared food, communions, meals, feasts. 
one of the biggest finds volume-wise in Minoan archaeology is little drinking cups. So what did people do on these benches? They talked. They talked about what we talk about, politics, who's who, who's topping who today, who's not doing a good job, and slowly the opinions of the people filter, you might say, upward to the leaders, the people of most influence, and these become in turn established as, for example, the male version in, uh, I think, Linear B is Damokotos, the people's man. Now, these benches go all the way, Karen, into the Minoan throne room. In other words, in Crete, you don't have a throne chair that is the point at which the only person in the room is allowed to sit where everyone else is on their face or on their knees in front of them. Instead, you have these benches that flank and face the Minoan throne as if lots of other people are participating in decisions, which is probably a good way to run things. Now, finally, to, you know, obviously give you your turn, but um, Nano Marinatos, one of the best recent scholars of the Minoans, many years of achievement now, she points out this connection between women and power in Crete that is, in her word, architectural. There's an original fresco where a female figure of great majesty is apparently welcoming people who are bringing tribute and farm produce and so forth to uh, Kenosis. The skirt of this woman's uh, figure is decorated with a pattern that is found also f framing, flanking, that is, the throne. And so when Maranato says the connection between this woman and the throne is, again, architectural, but again, we have the damos, the figures of the people who inform, criticize, contribute to the executive decisions that are being made. All right, so I'm, I'm not sure I'm connecting the dots there. Well, we're talking about some of the primary evidence that suggests that the Minoans were built around uh, maternal uh, and female executive power and decision-making. Well, well, yeah, okay. So, okay, let me just say back to you what I think you just said. So um, the let's call it the high priestess or queens or whatever she is, her yeah. her clothing represents it, – it, it's sort of – uh, a mirror image of the architecture. So um, you could say that she is a pillar. She is a pillar of the community, almost. You know, she's a, uh, you know, she holds up the community kind of a thing. Uh, but she does it by, uh, uh, well, I'm, I'm making a big leap in logic here, but uh, sort of by holding court or uh, consensus or group decision, uh, which you said about the, the benches who, that are all around the throne room. Um, did I uh, assume too much there, or is that what you were trying to say? No, I, I think that's a pretty accurate restatement. Uh, one of the other aspects of the throne, as it's so-called, uh, that is, probably involves women in a central way is that it had two functions, as archaeology understands it. One was called the epiphany. The appearance of the goddess, the appearance of, you might say, divine flesh, the imminence of the divinity, which goes back to the inability to distinguish divinities and human beings in their art. The other function, besides epiphanies, revelations of the core of their religion, pun intended on core, is initiation of the young, the teaching of the young people. I think that probably every leading Minoan child had a chance to go up to Kenosis, as we say about Oxford now, 
that probably everybody as an initiatory right had a chance to sit for a moment on the throne and that they were brought up to believe that if they developed themselves adequately in their learning, that they might, in fact, under the Minoan system of alternating power, uh, have a chance to sit there themselves. Hmm. Interesting. Um, okay, so, um, all right, so we don't know for sure about the snake goddess and her sister, those famous statues. Um, you know, we look at them as goddesses and our sort of reconstructed uh, goddess spirituality, but I think you're saying we don't know uh, within a shadow of a doubt that that represented a goddess to them, correct? Well, I think that in the case of those statues, in the case of some of the frescoes that simply depict a Minoan female on a throne uh, receiving honor and worship from others of the society, uh, has to speak for itself. We, we can't, as patriarchal text often does, simply reverse what we have in order to get the result that we want. If we see females seated and empowered, so to speak, uh, everywhere visually, it had to mean something to them. And if some of these beings are, well, so perfectly beautiful that they might exceed uh, the human realities, then we'd almost have to conclude that they're talking about a spiritual principle that is embodied, nonetheless, in the flesh. This is what we must never forget. Well, and I know a lot of the, it, you know, these statues. A lot of times, it, uh, what, how we understand what they are depends on where they were found. You know, uh, and and I don't know that I've ever read in, in anything about you know where these statues. Um, you know, uh, were actually found, you know, in Sutu, so to speak. Um, do you know anything about that? I mean, were they found in a place where there were burnt offerings or anything like that or in a temple complex or, or, is, or is it, uh, you know, it, you know that, that's never been well documented enough? Well, let's imagine that you're looking down on the labyrinth, the building that is central to Kenosis from the air. You're seeing a rough rectangle uh, whose upper face at the top of your page, so to speak, faces north. And in the west wing, in the same complex where that throne sits, a little bit south from there, uh, there is a series of hallways called the temple repositories where the Minoans also stored olive oil and many of their trade goods and so forth. In the, in the floors of that western wing storage areas, there were little red line cysts, C-Y-S-T-S, and the statues of the snake goddesses were found in there. I believe they were broken, as often sacred objects are when they're buried, but it appeared from the rubble accumulated over them that they were never found and pillaged away from there because either the Minoans deliberately put them away for safekeeping, had finished with them, and again killed the objects, uh, because again it's an ancient practice to do so, and that perhaps the rage, the violence of the Mycenaean takeover of Kenosis resulted in the collapse of much of the building uh, before it had been properly looted. That's also true in some of the other Minoan sites around the island. Okay. Um, uh, so draw the conclusion for me, please. Well, then it appears that these statues represented something very sacred. You don't invest that kind of workmanship, resources, labor, etc., 
into something trivial, uh, it suggests that those statues and other representations were central spiritual and religious expressions for I, the Minoans. Okay, okay, I get it. Um, now, you know, uh, I know when I was in that uh, that museum, uh, you know, near Knossos, I was very single focused, looking for goddess uh, oriented stuff. Um, did the Minoans also have gods, or were they a goddess? Uh, a goddess-based religion? Well, you'd have to, I think, conclude that they were goddess-based because of the sheer preponderance of images, even on the Mycenaean mainland uh, until really patriarchal times. The majority of representations are seated females, not men. In the Minoan canon, uh, I think the majority of male images that purport to have symbolic and perhaps even elite political meaning uh, involve a young god, a young man, or even a young boy sometimes. And then there are a few images of men with beards and uh, big decorous cloaks leading gangs of workers and things like that. Uh, overall, a consensus of studies on Minoan representation so far seems to suggest, uh, even in the most conservative of archaeological descriptions, the word egalitarian, that they were really pretty well based between male and female. Yeah, yeah, that's what I've that's what I've heard before too. Um, you know, a, another scholar I had on talked about the um, uh, the writings that they found, and obviously women own businesses and uh, could divorce their husbands and own property. Uh, you know, it seemed like you know it was it was a you know pretty egalitarian uh, society. Um, so, uh, so, but you know, in terms of, of spirituality, I mean, do we know, for instance, what they did in a ritual? I mean, have we found anything written that will say, uh, you know, any of the, you know, the actual enactments or sacrifices? I mean, for instance, did they make sacrifices? You know, what, what did a Minoan ritual look like? Do we have any idea, or do we have to extrapolate? Well, I'm, I'm going to take a stab at that based on my knowledge of their frescoes, their imagery, their architecture, etc. Uh, let's picture the west court, so-called, of Knossos Labyrinth. It's a broad courtyard that's divided by certain called sacred ways, that is to say raised pavement stones that lead toward an altar. So uh, if we can go by the different evidences I've mentioned, you might see a kind of a convocation or gathering of the people in, under the trees at the edge of that courtyard to watch as groups of priestesses and probably men uh, came out in a, quote, sacred procession bearing the, the great double axe or labyrinth in bronze that they uh, are seen so often with in their imagery. Uh, I think uh, pr practitioners of magic nowadays have a lot of strong roots to, su to suggest that there was a, the drawing of a sacred circle. We are all here. We're together. We are focused now on offerings, uh, different organic, uh, let's say, flowers, uh, grain, seed, first fruits from the harvest might be laid around the altar, both by uh, the clergy, the priestesses and priests, and or the people themselves. Um, animals of sacrifice, the bull, the goat, the ram, these would be offered. The blood appears from different Minoan icons to have been poured into jars or containers between a pair of double, double axes, which suggests using the horns of consecration also 
that these were offerings to their ancestors and their families as well as to the goddess, because you remember in the later myth, uh, Odysseus offers blood to get the dead to speak, to ask the dead souls who have come before him to give him wisdom. So you've got gatherings, offerings, sacrifices, no doubt music, no doubt dance. Uh, One of the best frescoes we have shows a a group of, I think it's 13 beautifully skirted Minoan priestesses in different gestures facing a crowd on that west courtyard. To me, it's almost as if they're creating the first animation. Maybe it's just one priestess in different movements, uh, but I hope that paints some kind of a picture. And again, the always ongoing the always ongoing uh, experiences on what you could call holy days uh, in their calendar, revelations where the woman who currently plays the goddess in the culture appears to the people, and then the initiation ceremonies of different kinds uh, for young people. So what do do you think the bull jumping uh, acts were about? Do you think that was some sort of sacred performance? So... uh, or just uh, athletic feats, or um, do we know? Well, the bull was the most powerful animal that the Minoans knew directly. They had a lot of lion symbology, but they were never lions in Crete, so we can talk about why that might mean something. But I think the bull was important to them, not only as in Babylon and other places, as a symbol of spring, but rather of the, just the ramping, overwhelming power and wildness of nature that you are never going to tame. One of the finest works in gold by a Minoan hand shows people trying to capture a bull and, well, getting their asses kicked. And they're all laughing about it, all right? So they, they recognize that nature is something beyond their control. Bull leaping might be a way of showing courage, okay? It might have started out as uh, an improvised sport, because that's one of the oldest traditions we know of for sure, according to John Younger, uh, that the Minoans were doing bull leaping for almost their entire history. I think it may have evolved, as I try to show in my novel, into a kind of trial uh, that would help to qualify and demonstrate different skills uh, in their young people going up to important social and political offices. Hmm. It's a dangerous dangerous animal to play with. Excuse me. Well, and I'm also thinking, too, I wonder if it was a metaphor for humanity's dance, okay, dance in air quotes, humanity's dance with nature, you know, uh, how they not can, not not that they can um, tame nature, but they kind of live in harmony with it in a sense, you know, Uh, language is failing me right now, but I don't know. Do you have a sense of what I'm trying to say? Absolutely. And, and we mustn't forget that one of the most famous Minoan frescoes, the so-called bullying fresco, shows women and men taking part in this. Okay? Yeah. And there's been a lot of symbolic interpretation of that fresco. Uh, one of the maybe most convincing is that leaping through the horns has some connection with with the horns themselves, if people can picture a mountain with twin peaks, one mountain with twin peaks, uh, this is, to the Minoans anyway, in their iconography, an evocation of both bull and, well, of the mountain itself. And to pass through that, 
uh, we can discuss the different ways that it functions as a doorway to and from the ancestors. To pass through that is a kind of an expression of or approach to eternal life. Huh. Well, that's interesting. Um, and yeah. now, is, is, that a, is that a personal theory, or is there some, um, I don't know, is, is that sort of an intuitive hit you've gotten, or uh, is, was there something that, you, you know, that that's based on? Well, if you don't mind then, I know our time goes fast here and all that, and I won't get too wonky on you at all. But if you wish, I'll, I'll go into a couple of the Minoan symbols and answer your question before you know it, all right? Okay. Okay. Centrally, one of the oldest, probably the oldest symbol that we have is the so-called the two-headed or double axe, so-called labrus, okay? And this is a, a, a it, in most of the finds we have, it's a practical object. Why? Because you can turn it around when the blade gets dull and get twice the work without having to sharpen it. In a symbolic way, most scholars agree now that the labrus had something to do with the sun, the moon, and perhaps even with a star, particularly the pole star, which is conceived as the door to the other world, the central unmoving point in the middle of the zodiac. So picture that double axe for a moment, and now we'll look at a second important central Minoan symbol. It was, some believe, Alexander McGillivray made this argument first, an Egyptian symbol borrowed from them called the Jew, D-G, excuse me, D-J-E-W. Again, this is the single mountain with a pair of horns. To the Egyptians, it represented the bed of the Nile River, and there were mountains on either side of that valley of their civilization where they buried their ancestors. So this figure, the Jew, the horned mountain, came to mean the ancestors, the horizon of the world, and it even had a pun in Egyptian meaning plenitude. So this is to say that Plenitude, along with life itself, comes from the family, the ancestors. We come from them and we go back to them. Now, in Minoan, the classic times, you could say the New Palace period after around 1600, we begin to see this double axe mounted like a tree in between the forms that decorate almost all the Minoan buildings. Okay? Now, if you think of that configuration, now look at the front of the throne in the central symbolic place of the labyrinth of Canossus. We see a sun, a moon, and a mountain. The sun and the moon are perched right between the horns. Now, this ties in with uh, archaeologist Lucy Goodison's discovery of where light falls on winter solstice. When is the time of year that you see a new moon in the sky on winter solstice. Well, it only happens every eight and a half years. Now you look at the back of the Minoan throne where the person of executive power sat, and you count eight or nine little waves in its shape. You can now pick up the labrys and count one, two, three, four, turn it around, five, six, seven, eight, or nine, counting the central point. So these numbers begin to coalesce in all kinds of Minoan representation around what appears to be an eight-and-a-half-year cycle. It's made up of two pairs of events, winter solstice with a new moon, and six months later, summer solstice with a full moon. Those two lights come in and touch important parts of the labyrinth's throne room at exactly those times of year. So when the Minoans were in crisis, and I'm wrapping up here, Karen, when the Minoans were in crisis, that's when we begin to see the labyrinths mounted between the horns, that means the ancestors. I believe this points to two things. 
Knossos became eventually, like in Egypt, the journey of the sun became the journey of the soul. Knossos became the, co- the Minoans' cosmic guide. It was reminding them that if you live this cycle according to its phases and seasons, you will go back to the ancestors from whence you came. But that meant Knossos was also the Minoan timepiece. It was keeping most accurately the rhythms of time that parsed out power amongst their different communities. And I'll stop right there, and we can talk about some of the implications, if you wish. Okay. Um, well, um Okay, uh, that 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 was interesting. I never uh, never really heard that before. But you know, I I did. Can want I to add ask one? You can a, I add one quick thing? Sure. Yeah. That would. Yeah, absolutely. It would just make a sense in terms of what people well think they know. There's one strange thing about this so-called King Minos, who never appears in Cretan archaeology, but is all through the myth. He reigned, we're told, for eight or nine years. Now, you almost never hear of any other king in history whose reign was limited in any way. Why is that true in Crete? And the fact that it dovetails with the eight-and-a-half, eight-or-nine-year cycle we've just talked about points again to a rhythm of power-sharing in Minoan Crete that kept anybody from getting too much of it. I see. So um, you're thinking that none of their leaders um, stayed in power longer than that eight-or-nine-year period. Well, we know from even other later evidences that would corroborate this uh, that that appears to be the case, that the, the, the Minoan cycle, you see Minos, it said, had to go up to the great cave at Mount Dicti every eight or nine years to reconfirm his power. This, this suggests that Minoan leaders were accountable or answerable, had to be evaluated and either renewed or not, Okay. But mm-hmm, if mm-hmm. this was a central calendar for two, maybe 2,000 years, uh, you'd have to expect that it had vestiges left over if it was such a practical system, and indeed we do. One is that the, the vast amount of contemporary use of moon and sun symbols in other cultures around the Minoans agree with their usages. But later, a, guy named Kenneth, a couple named Kenneth and Florence Wood published just recently a book called Homer's Secret Odyssey. And when you lay out Odysseus's adventures from his leaving home to his return home, you know what you get? The same Eight periods years. of time, the, the, the same year, periods of time, 19 years altogether, and there's a reason for that, but the same breakdown of periods, eight and a half, eight and a half, adding up to eventually the eclipse cycle that you find in Minoans. And finally, the Antikythera mechanism itself. Now, as far as we can divine so far, the purpose of this instrument was to keep time in order to tell with its many dials different Greek warring Greek communities when they should get together and host, take turns hosting the Olympic Games. And as other great scholars like Malcolm Cross point out, in Crete, all through the beginning historical period, the Cretans, unlike all the other Greeks, believed and practiced alternation of political office and the rule of law versus the rule of charismatic, lifelong individuals. So these are vestiges hmm. of a system that, that cannot have come out of nowhere. Right, right, to be right. Um, well, all right. So let's uh, let's you know start to uh, you know wrap it up with sort of like the demise of Crete. Um, how did it end, and what was going on in other parts of the surrounding area, Mediterranean, um, when Crete was on its uh, downslide? 
Okay, well, to start with the reigning power of the day, Egypt was moving toward um, a, a, a kind of a new way of dealing with its traditional enemy, the Hittites, while they were fighting over the Middle East, a land that belonged to neither of them. Um, the Greek islands were developing according to their own uh, cultural logic. The mainland was inhabited by then uh, by the Mycenaeans, who built palace centers, walled in fortresses amongst their own populations. They learned a lot from the Minoans, as I mentioned. And then, well, they, they pillaged their teachers. It's hard to say, say it differently than that. Um, but let me backtrack for a second. The Minoans had been struck many times by really severe earthquakes. They learned each time better how to build against them, to cooperate with natural forces and so forth. It was never an obstacle to their cultural continuity. What happened was the massiveness of the Santorini or Terra Volcano eruption. That now, uh, lots of controversy in its dating, but is believed to have happened in the latter part of the 1600s, followed by severe earthquakes, tsunamis, and so forth. This caused such disruption, the fall of the ash and so forth, in the Minoan economy that they became, some people think, almost dependent on mainland imports of food for which they were trading their shares of international trade in gold. That's why the Mycenaeans were covered with gold by the time the Minoans were on the downswing. So the Mycenaeans eventually, this is something that is, again, not clearly understood at all by modern scholarship, somehow insinuated themselves into powerful positions in Crete itself. This may have even pointed to kind of a sacred marriage between their peoples, but like Pocahontas and John Smith, it didn't work out too well for the native people involved. So we have, after a period of about 80 years of really violent uh, either conflict or invasion of all the Minoan community centers, you might say, uh, the Mycenaeans reigned there for a couple of hundred years, uh, really added nothing to the cultural invention that was going on there before they themselves fell. But a lot of, to wrap up here, a lot of the Minoan leading families migrated uh, in almost every direction. Uh, Libya, Sicily, the mainland, Troy, uh, Anatolia, the Middle East, on and on. And they eventually became known as the Philistines, who were the first to meet the historical Israelites. So that's how they fell down, but they sure did keep going. So um, what what would you like to leave us with about the Minoans? I mean, what um, uh, you know do do they leave us with a with a legacy we should be paying attention to, or um, you know what do what do they say to us about um, ourselves as humans, life, nature? Sure. Uh, I, I'd like, if I may, to say a thank you to Charles F. Herberger, who's been my friend for many years since I discovered his work in 1977, The Threat of Ariadne, who first proposed uh, uh, new understandings of Minoan language in their symbology rather than in their writing. Uh, he opened the door to all kinds of research that I did in which I, was, I felt myself listening all the time to try to divine between the lines what the Minoans have to say. And... I, I did put together a couple of thoughts about nature, human being, and life itself that I think you're going to find you can substantiate. One is that the divine is imminent. Nature is shot through with divine spiritual energy, and the connection to that is erotic. Look at their art. They are touching, living in, reveling in the world. 
Second, in regard to nature, its existence is cycles within cycles. Life returns from death. As a friend of mine here says, you kill the plant and it comes back. We even see little sprigs of green growing off their central symbol, the labrys, as if it's a living thing. Most importantly about nature, I think the Minoans recognize that even the greatest powers in it, the sun, the moon, they have limits. They, they work in cycles. They get very powerful, and then they fall, and then they come back. People should be the same way. So for people, what would I say the Minoans are telling us? First, be your beautiful self. Be, you, you never saw people who so enjoyed looking good. The Cretan men are the most masculine you can imagine. The women are the most elegant. Enjoy complementarity rather than difference. Connected with that, learn to take turns. Power sharing. The labyrinth, the, the, the circles of time were created to contain the minotaur, the worst in us, as manifest in the kings that imperial history has used to devour us. Because, as I mentioned, people are good unless they get too much power. So finally, life. For the Minoans, we come from and we return to the family. Life is forever now amid the cycles of the seasons. We need a civilization that works in harmony with that or we're not going to make it. For them, what matters is what always wins. Nature, daily life, not ideology. Doing the ritual, doing the action, not your ego. And finally, I think as we're hearing from the great Native Americans at Standing Rock, we're hearing from the Minoans that earth itself is sacred and so is life. We need to work on and build on that principle. Well, I, I think uh, those are good ideals uh, to live by, uh, most definitely, most definitely. Well, Jack, um, I, I, I want to thank you for, uh, you know, trying to give us this jam-packed view of this, uh, this ancient culture that survived for so long in, you know, such a, a little nutshell of, a, of an interview here. Um, I, I appreciate uh you know all your research and because because uh, you know I've had people talk about Minoan Crete before and you know you your um, your way of telling it you know it's kind of a different fresh approach and uh, you know there's you know you uh, presented some new information that uh, was new to me and I'm I'm sure maybe to some of my listeners as well so I I appreciate that and um your your website ancientlights.org uh is would uh, would you direct folks there to um learn more about Minoan Crete uh yes that that would be a great starting point Karen I, I just want to reply that it's always an honor and a real pleasure to be here and I greatly appreciate that uh if I may just point to the works that I've tried to provide people to get uh, a handle in many different ways on the Minoans uh, the novel 1996, Ariadne's Brother, a novel on the fall of Bronze Age Crete, tells it in a dramatic way the story of a family around Ariadne and her little brother as they, well, express who they are and then what happened to them. Uh, Calendar House, Clues to Minoan Time from Knossos Labyrinth, is, well, quite an extensive work that takes in a huge amount of Minoan evidence to show you uh, different organizational principles that in turn enable many other further studies. And then finally, uh, based on public lectures I've been giving in those subjects, there's a small book, it's only five euro, called The Kenosis Calendar, Minoan Cycles of the Sun, the Moon, the Soul, and Political Power, and that's available from Mystis, M-Y-S-T-I-S, publishers, 
So uh, I hope people enjoy those. And I am a, a dialogue freak. I love to discuss. So I hope people will get in touch and uh, start helping our mutual learning forward, starting with you, Karen. Okay. Uh, well, thank you. And uh, just uh, if you would mention one more time that uh, you said it's this compendium, I think, of a bunch of essays uh, that uh, that folks can find online as well. What was that? You spelled it for us. What is What was that called again? Yes, that's called Aegeum, A-E-G-E-A-U-M. And it is very large volumes of peer-reviewed archaeological studies on virtually every aspect of Minoan life and all the physical evidences there, too. Uh, World-class scholarship, uh, great forums. I think it's out of print now, but there are over 20 volumes of it. And uh, it is available for free, most of it for, available for free online. Just Google Agaeum Minoan Civilization, and I think you will very easily come to it. Okay. And, you know, one other thing I remembered I forgot to ask you, and if there's a quick answer, um, I think that they found a lot of human sacrifice uh, uh, or sacrifice of babies, uh, if I'm if I'm not remembering wrong. Uh, it, what do you think about that? Um, you know, was that desperation? Uh, as I've read, uh, you know, sacrifices to the gods to save them. Um, I, I don't know. Do you do you know anything about that? Uh, yes, and I'm at fault for not listing it among my different distortions, modern-wise, of the Minoans. In a quick nutshell, yeah, uh, there are two examples on which um, patriarchal history feasts, okay, pun intended. One is a small collection of bones bearing scrape marks from the vicinity of Knossos late in their crisis years, you might say. Some people have argued that this meant that they were sacrificing children to placate the thunder god and all this kind of stuff. But it's equally possible that these bones represent a process called excarnation. When a being dies, and of course there was high infant mortality in all the ancient world, they are buried, then disinterred, the, the remaining flesh scraped off, which would have left those uh, marks. And sometimes, horrible as we may think, the flesh was consumed because in their beliefs that was part of enabling the spirit of the person to come back in another life. The other example, and it's clear, is a place called Animospilia up in the mountains south of Knossos. There was a young man uh, apparently tied down on a table of sacrifice and he was offered there before the roof of this little building collapsed in a major earthquake. Uh, but uh, while this was discovered, and correctly analyzed as a human sacrifice. Most people agree now that it was a, a, a one-off event, as far as we know, uh, in a time of extremity, and that there are no signs otherwise of struggle of force uh, involved in that victim. It might have been a young man who offered himself as a way to say, let me carry a prayer for our survival into the next world. So I don't mean yeah. to in any way cause... Uh, create some kind of big ethical frame around the act. Uh, it's good that we grew out of that, but it is nothing, nothing like what the media have portrayed as the Minoans as cannibals. That was a stereotype inflicted too on the uh, Phoenicians, on their people in Carthage, 
Native Americans, uh, anywhere you want to, you put babies and the family as victims and you have a reason to remove them. Right, right. Yeah, here we're back to that demonizing a culture again. Well, and Jack, finally, thank what, you. More, what more could you offer of value to your gods, by the way? What more could you offer if you gave up a child? This is the most yeah. precious offering you can make. It's not a sign of barbarity at all. Excuse me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I, uh, I, I totally get that. You know, we have to really stop and understand uh, that the context and mores of these ancient people were not the same as ours. You know, okay. um, you know. So we we can't, uh, we you know, we can't really judge them by you know what our value system is either. So, um, well, right. Jack, I look, I, I look forward to uh, our, the next time we speak. Uh, I believe it's, uh, I don't have the calendar in front of me, but I think it's a, in about a month or so. Um, and what is our topic? I think we're talking about Native Americans next time. On my wall above my Minoan pictures, I have January 18th, and we will be talking the continuing story of the Minoans as they migrated away from the wreckage of Crete into eventually the Middle East, where they met head on the first known Israelites. Okay, well, that will be interesting. I don't know anything about that at all, so I look forward to uh, that, that new information. Were they, by chance, um, the, the people that are referred to as the Sea People? Yes, the Sea Peoples were a collection of uh, Aegean and other tribes who were displaced, and many of them eventually ended up in what was then Canaan and became known as Palestine under the aegis of a central tribe called the Philistines or the Pusaki. Yeah, and the Philistines, um, they're the ones that get the bad rap, aren't they? You know, that's, a, that's that slur, you Philistine. Well, as Reagan said, here we go again. <laughs> <laughs> it's the same story. Okay. If, if, if they, you know, if they were more advanced uh, in so many ways, why did they lose the struggle? I really hope people will tune in and find out what really happened. Okay. All right. Well, Jeff, thank you so much. And um, listen, you have a wonderful holiday, and uh, I will I will envy you uh, living out your your life on your Greek island there. Uh, <laughs> I, I just I, I I I just think about all of those whitewashed buildings with the blue uh, with the blue domes, and you're sitting there, you know, with, uh, surrounded by the beautiful Aegean. And uh, wow, uh, you got it well, pretty good, man. You you do that you you feel that way until you come and visit and we have a nice front porch that overlooks the ocean and the mountains. Uh, we'll watch the sunrise together and uh, drink some raki. Ah, well, you know, I just may take you up on that. <laughs> All right, I didn't, we'll check. I, I offered it quite seriously. We're here. Okay. Okay. Thank you. I will. I will. I will take the invitation seriously. Well, listen. You thank you, you have. These good next few weeks. Enjoy your holiday, uh, this season here, and uh, we will uh, we will talk uh, again soon. I look forward to it. Happy winter solstice, everyone. Okay. Good night. Good night. Bye. Bye bye. Okay. Well, uh, interesting conversation. I thank Jack for that. Um, I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. And I really am looking forward to uh, hearing the rest of the story uh, on January 18th, I said. And uh, now uh got to get a little bit of business out of the way here. I turn my attention to uh, Joe Carson.
most people see humankind as really separate from nature and separate from the earth. I'm as much of this earth as a rock or a tree. And I came out of it. This is, this is my mother planet. I grew out of this earth. As long as we conceive of divinity as above us or outside of us, or that our bodies are somehow less divine than spirit, there's no way that we can change our course. Well, you've been listening to the trailer for Dancing with Gaia, Joe Carson's feature-length documentary film. In it, she interviews 15 visionaries and teachers about Earth energy, sacred sexuality, and the return of the goddess as Gaia. Well, Joe traveled to ancient sacred sites all over Europe and the Mediterranean to shoot this film, and these spiritual sites from northern Scotland to central Turkey profoundly affected the origins of Western culture. If you've always wanted to see them for yourself but haven't, this is an opportunity to experience some of the best ones and get their story. The DVD comes packaged with a 45-page color mini-book, which goes even deeper into the material. And you can buy the DVD and booklet for only $20 at DancingWithGaia.com. DancingWithGaia.com. And I want to thank uh, all of you who either sent me emails or sent me little um, little congratulations uh, or, or notes on Facebook. Uh, my husband Roy and I celebrated our anniversary last night. Uh, yep, Pearl Harbor Day, that's our anniversary. Uh, and uh, 32 years legal, as Roy is quick to say. It would probably be about 36 if we counted the non-legal years. And uh, we had a nice dinner last night and uh, just sort of um, had appreciation for the three decades that uh, we have had together, and uh, I, I feel truly blessed. Uh, Roy is the wind beneath my wings. He is always there uh, helping me, supporting my work, and I consider myself uh, very lucky. Uh, in this life, I have most definitely uh, been lucky in love. So, uh, and you know what? That makes up for a lot of other things that, uh, you know, that, that maybe sometimes we don't have. Well, uh, that about does it for me uh, tonight, uh, my dear friends and colleagues and, uh, and, uh, and family as, as well who's listening. Uh, I just want to remind you about the new anthology out, um, Goddess 2.0, Advancing a New Path Forward. I said a lot about it in the opening, so I'm not going to uh, say too much more um, other than uh, I think it will surprise you. Uh, I feel like if we are really going to create a new world, a new normal, uh, we can do that with more confidence if uh, we can vision what that would look like. And as I said, you know, this idea of um, goddesses, ideals, and values goes way beyond uh, Wicca 101 or any of that stuff that's just about, uh, you know, doing ritual or tarot or energetics. I mean, we are really talking about um, uh, cultural transformation. Yes, indeed, cultural transformation. And a lot of the folks in this book... um, you know, they are wise beyond their years, and I think they give us a lot of ideas uh, on what we can do to uh, start thinking and acting uh, 
in ways that uh, help us actually see that paradigm shift uh, in our lifetime. Yeah, I think that's what we all need. So uh, I think that about does it for me tonight. I want to thank you for your listener loyalty. And as always, remember, uh, in all phases of our life, what we nurture, it thrives. What we neglect, it withers. Uh, So take that to heart in all that you do including uh, listening to the show. If you can uh, send us a donation to uh, help pay for airtime, it is always appreciated. Uh, Just go to my uh, website, karentate.com. When you're there, go to the Goddess Store page. And if you uh, scroll past the books all the way down to the bottom, uh, there is a, a PayPal button you can use to make a donation of any amount. And also, while you're there, there's uh, a lot of multi-book uh, bundles, as I call them. You uh, buy several books, uh, I give you a really good price. Uh, so you might want to go take a look at uh, what's on sale there. A new book as well as old book. And, um, of course, uh, those will be personally signed uh, and sent to you. And, uh, you know, not bad prices there. Uh, The prices include shipping and handling if you're in the United States. Uh, So check that out, and uh, you can always uh, help me out and support my work uh, by buying my books. Uh, There's also goddess greeting cards there of sacred places, uh, free meditations, you know, it's worth a look. There's a lot of good stuff on the website, uh, free talks, free interviews, um, you know, just lots of stuff you can avail yourself of. Okay, well, that uh, that about does it for tonight. I think uh, all of that business out of the way. I look forward to uh, seeing you next Wednesday when I have on the show uh, Ann Jones. And uh, Ann and I are going to have a very interesting conversation. We're going to be talking about uh, her life in Scandinavia. And um, our topic is uh, Social Democracy for Dummies uh, with a subtitle, uh, American Democracy Down for the Count. What is it the Scandinavians have that we don't? So we're going to be talking about that. And, uh, you know, she is an American who lives there, uh, lives it firsthand, and she's going to tell us uh, what life is like in Scandinavia uh, and uh, the things that we might aspire to here in the United States. Because, you know, just like I said before about the book, uh, if we uh, open our mind uh, to new ways of doing things and new ideas, uh, then we change things because we can't keep doing the same things over and over and expect, uh, you know, expect things to be different. All right. Well, uh, I will just uh, close with uh, a little bit of music here to just kind of say good night. I think we'll go with Awaken uh, by Alea Deo because uh, that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to awaken the sleeping masses uh, and uh, all sorts of ways. Good night. (laughs) 